Uh, J.D. Greer is a uh, pastor up in North Carolina at Summit Church, a great church. He was telling the story one time of a, an older couple who um, been married a long time, and in their being married, they had, um, you know, obviously gone through some ups and downs. And one of the times, the, the wife says, hey, I, I just want to say to my husband, and, and, and just to let you know, it is amazing how gracious that... Um, he has been when I sometimes lose my temper and I say some things I, I wish I hadn't said. And, and he just is always so gracious and calm in his response. And, and people are listening to this and thinking, oh, wow, that's great. And so they, they asked the, they asked the guy, said, hey, what, what is it that keeps you so calm and collected when, when your spouse, after all these years, says these things or raises their voice? And he says, well, I just, I just go and clean the toilets and uh, just kind of helps me settle in and get that off my mind. And, um, and they said, why would cleaning the toilets help you with this? He goes, well, because I use her toothbrush. And, 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 and that, that does it. Um, <clears throat> terrible. Don't, listen, it's not marriage advice. It's not marriage advice. Sean, it's okay. You can, yeah. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Don't do that. Hey, as, I, as I'm thinking about anger today, I'm thinking about um, the, the idea of, you know, this couple here, one clearly revealed their anger out with loud and yelling and all that. The other concealed it and said, hey, I'm just going to stew on it and, and go clean the toilets and do it with your toothbrush. And it may not have been anything anyone ever saw, but it was concealed. Anger happens in both ways. And today, as we think about anger, if I were to name two or three words that describe our society as a whole outside of the word divided, the next word would be we're angry. We're angry. We're angry at all kinds of stuff. We're angry at stuff we're not even really sure what everybody else is angry about, but we're angry, and it, it, it's something that we feel, and I think it's something that most of us in the room probably are feeling and struggling with in some way, shape, or form. I, I came across this article. I'd read the opening sentence to you by Martha Nussbaum. She says this, There's no emotion we ought to think harder and more clearly about than anger. Anger greets us most every day in our personal relationships, in the workplace, on the highway, on airline trips, and often in our political lives as well. That's an understatement. Anger is both poisonous and popular. Even when people acknowledge its destructive tendency, they still so often cling to it, seeing it as such a strong emotion connected to self-respect. Like, I ought to get angry. Everybody ought to know that something has happened against me or my viewpoint. And so to be respected, I give full vent to my anger so that people will know it. Or, or maybe a different quote by a guy named Daniel Goldman who wrote a book on into, uh, emotional intelligence. He says this, Anger is the most seductive of the negative emotions. The self-righteous inner monologue that propels it Along fills the mind with the most convincing arguments for vending rage. The, he says the self-righteous inner monologue. I call that our inner lawyer, right? He says, unlike sadness, anger is energizing. It's even exhilarating. Anger is seductive and persuasive. Today, as we uh, think about it, our hero that we've been looking at for the last you know, month or so is King David, and he's going he's gonna to struggle with anger. And the passage in 1 Samuel 25 is a passage of, of David getting angry. And thank goodness, spoiler alert, somebody comes in and, and cuts him off before he is able to give full vent to his anger. Or else, 1 Samuel 25 would probably be just as recognizable as the David and Bathsheba incident. That's the caliber that we're talking about. This is, a, this is a crazy story. And just 
In full disclosure, I'll tell you this. I have probably preached this passage um, up there with some of the passages I've, I've preached the most. And up front, I, I probably didn't understand why, but I, I, I think I can look back and see because I'm an angry person. I can get angry, and I, I, I preach this passage, and I look at this passage, and it's just always a great reminder of where anger ought to be and where it ought to put in it, be put in its place. And so I just full transparency today say um, this is almost like group therapy for me. So thank you for listening. I'm sure none of you struggle with this. And so if you'll just allow me to work through the passage, it'll be great. Let's start there. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. It says, Samuel died and all Israel assembled to mourn for him. And they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. Uh, just a brief bit of background, Samuel, we've seen him before. Samuel's the guy that anointed Saul, who's our current king. He also anointed David, who's going to be the king coming up. And so Samuel's a heavyweight spiritually in the life of the nation of Israel. Uh, if you'll remember a few years ago when Billy Graham passed away, and it was on every major headline in every major news network, that is what this would be equivalent to, if not more so. Samuel was that kind of guy. He carried that kind of influence. And so this is a loss. This is a significant loss, even more so for David, because they had relationship. It also says that David is in the wilderness. And the reason he's in the wilderness is because he's running for his life. Saul, the guy sitting on the king, is jealous of David. He doesn't like David. He wants to kill David. And so David's got to be on the move. He and his little, you know, ragamuffin team of about 600 guys. They got to constantly be moving around because Saul wants him dead. And so that's the context that we are in here. And here's David in the wilderness, and he's going to do a job. Let's look at it. Verse 2. A man in Maon had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, he was a Calebite. He was harsh and evil in his dealings. Uh, Nabal in Hebrew means fool, and so the author, the narrator of this story is wanting us to see this is a fool of a man, this is a, an evil man, but his wife, on the other hand, who's going to be the hero of the story, she is wise, she is kind, she is beautiful, and we see that he's incredibly wealthy. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, that's, what he's gonna, um, that's how he makes his livelihood. He's done a good job for himself. He goes on in verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men instructing them, Go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, Long life to you and peace to you, to you and your family, and to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing your sheep, and when your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them. And nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you can afford to your servants and your son, David. There's a little bit of a cultural uh, behavior here that we need to be aware of so that this, this little interaction will make perfect sense. Um, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats is a lot, and you got shepherds that need to take care of them. What would happen is, is these guys would be on the the hillsides or in the wilderness, and they would come alongside the shepherds and they would help. 
These are trained warriors, so they're the guys who are running off the predators. They're making sure, hey, I'll help you go get this one that's lost. I mean, 3,000, that's a lot to wrangle. And the the custom of the day would be once it's shearing time. I mean, shearing time is why you raise sheep. You want to take the wool and harvest it and sell it. And once it comes shearing time, the, the basic customary practice would be, can, can we get a tip for helping? Can we get a little tip for making sure we got all of your 3,000 sheep to the shearer? That's all he's asking for. He said, we've helped you. We've tried to come alongside your men. Nothing wrong has happened. And so David is sending his guys and saying, hey, just nice and easy here. Can we get a tip? For us, it's custom and, um, to tip people all the time. It's not, you don't have to do it, but it's expected. So for example, I went to Atlanta airport the other day and I parked at the parking spot, which is an offsite little parking area. Uh, they picked me up in a little shuttle bus. They take me to the terminal. And when they drop me off, the guy driving the bus, he gets out of his seat. He grabs my suitcase and puts it on the sidewalk. And he says, thank you very much. And we would say customary would be to do, give him a tip. Give him a tip. If I don't give him a tip, it, it, it's not like uh, I've done something wrong or I can't get to my car, but it would be respectful to give him a tip because of what he's just done. That's the exact same thing that David's asking. I took care of your sheep. I helped your men. It's shearing time. You're throwing a big party. There's alcohol involved. Y'all are living it up. You got plenty of money. Could you give us a little something? Food, drink, maybe some cash. That's what he's asking for. Sounds fair, doesn't it? Sounds fair. Goes on. He says, verse 9. Um, David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. They go and tell him all this. Verse 10, Nabal asked them, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. If you know the story at this point, you're probably like, Oh, if we've been reading it chronologically, we all know that everyone knows David's name. This is the guy that killed Goliath. This is the guy that people are singing songs about. This is the hero of Israel. So for Nabal to do this, he is sticking his finger in the wound of the fact that David is having to run. David's having to run away from Saul. And that's why he says this little sarcastic ditty Masters are leaving their slaves these days. Matter of fact, I could stop here and preach a sermon called How to Be a Jerk. That's it, isn't it? I mean, the guy's just asking for a tip. He's just asking for a little help. And this is what you do. Who's David? You know who David is. People are running away from their masters. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be a jerk. If, if you don't want to give a tip, you could say something like, hey, it, it, we're not going to be able to do that this year. Thank you. Whatever. But don't, don't do that, right? Some of us need a little etiquette on, on some of those things, but that's a sermon for another time. Then he goes on in verse 11. He says, I'm supposed to take my bread and my water and my meat that I butchered for my shears and give them to these men. I don't even know where they're from. Not only does he sit back and poke David in the eyeball, he then goes on and says, hey, this is my stuff and I'm not giving it away. Another sermon, how not to be generous. Just keep your junk. Keep your stuff. It's mine and hold it. White knuckle it. The ability you don't want to give anything away. It's crazy. Now, my guess is, is what's welling up in you is what's welling up in David. So when I tell this story, you're probably like, yeah, Nabal's a jerk. Yeah, just give him a tip. 
Yeah. Yeah, you, he should be angry. He should be angry. So when we look at the story, we see what happens next. We get the men who hear this story, they, they then are going to go to Abigail and, and they're going to have to relay all of this information. But before we get that, it says in verse 12, David's men retraced their steps. And when they returned to David, they reported all these words, everything that Nabal just said. Who are you? Why should I give my stuff to you? Verse 13, he said to his men, all of you, put on your swords. Put on your swords. And look how many men they're going to put on their swords. So David and all his men put on their swords. About 400 men followed David while 200 stayed with the supplies. This ain't going to be good. Put on your swords? You didn't get a tip. Put on your swords? He was, he was disrespectful, but put on your swords? Really? That seems like a little bit of overkill, isn't it? That seems like a little over the top. That seems like a bit much for, for not getting a tip. But man, David lets him have it. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I wish ver, verse 13 said something like, um, and David looked at his guys and said, now tell me again what Nabal said. I wish 13 said something like, hey, maybe I should go talk to Nabal. Surely there's some you know, miscommunication. Something got lost in translation here. But that's not what he says. He says, put on your swords. You ever put on your swords? I, I mean, I'm, group therapy, so just let me, let me show you where I put on my swords. Um, I cannot believe that guy did not put on his blinker. Put on your swords! Anybody else? Um, I, <laughs> I can't believe. I, I ordered my eggs over medium, and you brought them out scrambled. Put on your swords! I just would like for you to get in the car when I say to get in the car the right time. Put on your swords. I'm assuming your laughter and applause is like to help me with therapy, not that you identify with any of this. Any of this, right? Put on your swords. Crazy to think about, isn't it? Like over the top, full in, let's go. Some of you would say, whoo, thank goodness that's not me. I get angry, I get frustrated, but I never have rage. Let me just tell you, there's not a dime's worth of difference between any of those words. Let, let, let me just give you a definition here. You know me. I'm a definition guy. It would probably be good to have some clarity on what is anger. So I'm going to put it on the screen. It's a little wordy, but just go with me. You ready? Here it is. Here's our definition of anger. Definition is our, a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. I know it's wordy. Let me read it again. I'm going to break it down for us. Our anger is a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Start with the first phrase, whole person. When I say whole person, many of us just think, oh, well, anger is an emotion. It is an emotion but it affects your entire person. There's probably some physicians in the room that could talk about how physiologically our body changes when we get mad. We release some hormones, we get red-faced, heart beats a little bit more. You can't tell me that it's not whole person. It affects us more than just our emotion here. I don't think David said this, put on your swords. I don't think that's the way it went. 
I think, I, think, I think there's a vein popping out right here. I think there's red sweating, like physically. And not only that, but there's a mental piece to our anger. Like here in a moment, we're going to see he is recounting this over and over and over again in his mind. He's just replaying it. I can't believe this. I guarded his sheep. I kept his shepherds safe. And this is how he repays me. We don't have those kind of conversations, do we? It is mental. It is emotional. It is physical. It is a whole person. The next part, active response. The word active means that you do something. Anger is not just something you feel. It is something you do. It's something you do. That's why it's an active response. Now, this is what's important about this. If it's something you do, it's something you can control. If it's something you do, it's something you control. And some of you are looking at me right now and say, oh, no, Russell, you don't know me. When I get angry, there ain't no control. It's, it's off the handle, and I got to have a lot of time to wind this thing back. No control. No, no, you, you have control over your anger. Um, my family's not sitting with me now. They were in the first service and had to hold me accountable to this story, so I'll tell it just like I did first service. Sure, you don't have anything that's even similar to this, but try to, try to identify. There are times that we need the seven of us to get in the van, seven of us, that's a lot, seven of us to get in the van and to get to a location on time. Let's just call it 8 o'clock. We're trying to get somewhere at 8 o'clock. And to do that, around 7.45 is when we need to leave. At 7.30, you knew the routine. I go through the house and I say, hey, 15-minute warning, everybody. Nice and cheery because breakfast went off without a hitch, right? It was great. We're good. All is well. And so as a result, 7, 7.45, you got 15 minutes in, I might go through and say, put the Lego away, put the book away, get off the couch, just laying there, comb your hair, brush your teeth, make sure you got everything you need. Let's just say we're going to church, right? You got your Bibles, you got everything you need. At 7.40, I ring the five-minute bell. Anybody got a five-minute bell? I ding, ding, ding. Hey, we got five minutes. You're still playing with a Lego. That's not good. And at that point, I start to have an active response. Anybody else start having an active response about them? Start to have a little bit of an active response. I start to, start to feel some things. I, I feel my heart rate going up. I, I can tell that 745 is not going to happen. It's not going to happen, and, and maybe my whole person begins to respond with a little more tone, a little elevation of, of, of volume maybe, right? At 7.45, I find myself sitting in the van all by myself, and at that point, my active response is way, way different now, right? It's way different, and finally, they all meander into the van, and half of them are forgot something. One of them's hopping along with his shoe and his, and his side. You know what I'm talking about right now. You don't know. Your kids are perfect, and you get to your van on time. We get in there, and at that point, I begin to ask some questions. Why I ask questions, I don't know. Their frontal lobe's not fully developed, and the things that I get in response are amazing. They're amazing, Right? 
And so that just causes me to have more of a whole person active response. And I say some things, and they say some things, and we say some more things. And here we are on our way to Radius Church, and we get to the driveway, and let me tell you how controlled I am. We close the door on that van, and we walk up saying, good morning, how are you? Everything's fine. I'm taking your laughter as you understand this. That just tells us you can control it like that. Like that. It's amazing, isn't it? Close the van door and all is fine. Get to the school. Hate for a teacher to see us like that. Don't want our church folks to see us like that. Don't want the people at the ball field. Like we could close that thing off. It's amazing the things we'll say in private that we'll never do at work because you can what? You can control it. It's not just something you feel. It's an active response, something you do. Third thing, it is a negative moral judgment. That's what David's going to do here. He's going to make a negative moral judgment about Nabal. Now, when I say moral, this is important here. Some of us make amoral things moral things. Some of us make amoral things moral things. For example, the guy who didn't use the blinker, why do we make that a moral issue? The guy who doesn't cut his grass two doors down, why is that a moral issue? We just make it a moral issue, and therefore we create a negative moral judgment against it, which leads us to our next one, which is against. Anger is always against something. It's against something. And there's nothing wrong with that if it's righteous anger. But for the most part, all the world knows about us is what we're against. That's all they ever hear from us. What are we against? And what are we against? And what are we against? Crazy to think about it, isn't it? And then finally, the last one, a perceived evil. The whole idea that perception is reality, the way we perceive things. The guy didn't use his blinker because he hates my guts and he wants to ruin my day. The guy who doesn't mow his yard two doors down, the reason why he doesn't do that is because he just wants to ruin our, our property values. Like we, just, we just have this perceived evil in our mind, like the waitress really meant to bring us the wrong order. They, they did that on purpose to ruin my life. Perceived evil. This means that our conscience, our perception, should be biblically informed. So if it's not biblically informed, then we can begin to write this thing however we want to. Crazy to think about, right? Now, I know you've got two questions. Two questions. I had two questions. Where in the world does this come from? Where does this come from? And Russell, can I be okay? Can I have righteous anger? What's the difference between righteous anger, good anger, and sinful anger? These are two great, great questions. I don't have a ton of time, but I'm going to try to answer them quickly. These are going to be on the, on the screen. James chapter 4, it really says it all. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, tell you where this comes from, why this dry, wells up in us. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. The problem is selfishness. The problem is unchecked desires. The problem is, is we want things we shouldn't have or we want them the wrong way or we want them for the wrong reason. And when we don't get those desires, guess what? We get 
angry. We get angry. So it wells up within us. So we've got to check that. This is just for free. You say, how do I know if my desires aren't, aren't good? How do I know if they've crossed the line? Easy way to check that. If you're willing to sin to get it. If you're willing to sin to get it. If you want respect and you're willing to sin to get it. You want money, you're willing to sin to get it. You want sexual activity, you're willing to sin to get it. If you want whatever and you're willing to sin to get it, then you know my desire has gone way too far. It's not in a good spot. Second question. Second question is, what about righteous anger? What about can my anger be good instead of sinful? I'm going to tell you this. That definition we just put up there, that's the same definition for righteous anger and for sinful anger. It's the same definition. So when God is righteously angry at our sin, when he is righteously angry, when we fail, it's still a whole person active response. It is still a negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And when we have righteous anger, that's what it is. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that 99.9% of the time, my anger is not righteous indignation. My anger is sinful anger. I have three questions that I have to ask myself to know if I'm angry for the right reasons or if my anger is sinful. Here they are. Um, the first one is, am I angry about a sin? Am I angry about a sin? Or am I angry about a preference? Am I angry about house rules? Am I angry about something that is not really that big of a deal? If I'm not angry at a sin, then I probably shouldn't be having a whole person active response and making a negative moral judgment because it's not a sin. You come in here and say, I don't like the way the chairs are arranged. That's fine. It's, it's just a preference. There's no need to have a whole person active response toward it, right? No need for that. It's just, it's just not a sin. So no need to get angry. Let's say it is a sin. What's the next question? The next question, am I concerned about God's name and his values and his kingdom, or am I concerned about my name and my kingdom and my agenda? So sometimes when my child is disobedient, I, I can have some righteous anger to that because it's sinful. The problem is I'm more concerned about them sinning against me than I am them sinning against God. And at that point, I failed the second check. Now I'm just worried about my concerns in my kingdom. And then finally, when we think about the, the third one, we would say this. Is my angered, anger accompanied with godly characteristics and godly qualities? Love, patience, gentleness, truth. Or is my anger accompanied with vindictiveness, yelling, not watching my tongue, that point, the first two might have been right, but what you accompanied or vented your anger with now makes it sinful. That's the reason 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm out. I've just been sinning in my anger. Crazy to think about, right? And that's what we have here. When we have David way back over here in 1 Samuel 25, we have a guy who is now sinning because he is going to show his anger in a way that is not consistent with God's qualities and his values. He is fixing to not only kill Nabal, he's going to kill everyone in that home. That's not consistent with God's value. And that's where we can look at it and say sinful anger. So what happens next? The men give this message to David's men. Nabal's guys say, hey, this is how it's going down. And they go to Abigail. 
They go to Abigail and they say, hey, Abigail, you know how your husband is. He's a jerk. He's a fool. He's not going to listen to us. And if we don't do something, no, no, no. If you don't do something, Abigail, we're all going to die. And so Abigail, who is the hero of the story, listen, I wish I could preach some sermons about Abigail. I just don't have time. She's the hero. She's a godly woman. She does all of this amazing stuff. She rushes in to be the peacemaker. I wish I could say more. I just don't have time. She goes into the kitchen and she starts doing exactly what David requested, makes this amazing meal and kills some sheep and puts all this stuff together. And she says, you guys go ahead. I'm going to go meet David. I'm headed down there and I'm going to cut this off at the pass and see if we can save everybody's life. When she gets down there, she meets David. Look at verse 20. As she rode the donkey down a mountain pass hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. Look at how she meets David. David had just said, now, he's riding his horse. He got 400 guys with him. And this is what the Bible says. He just said, listen to this. He said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his men survive until morning. You ever had one of those kind of conversations with the windshield before? That's what she's going to meet. That's what she's going to meet. She's going to meet a guy who has not calmed down, who has not cooled off, who's not saying, well, let me second guess this. No, she's going out to meet a guy who is still ready to fully vent and kill everyone. Not only that, swear by God to do it. This guy's mad. This guy's angry. So what does Abigail do? Good night. Look at this. I can't read all of it, but it's, it's really good. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey, fell with her face to the ground in front of David. She fell at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of, this, of your servant. My Lord should pay no attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for he lives up to his name, which means fool. I mean, she's calling it out right then and there. And then she said, his stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who want trouble for my Lord be like Nabal. Accept this gift your servant has brought to my Lord, and let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Look at verse 28, and I'm going to stop here. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Crazy. Please forgive him. She keeps going. She's, she, I mean, this is, this is 101 on how to do conflict resolution. 101 on humility, 101 on on peacemaking. She is laying it out. And then finally, David's going to respond, verse 32. After her speech, David said to Abigail, Praise to the Lord God of Israel who sent you to to meet me today. Your discernment is blessed and you are blessed today. You kept me from participating in bloodshed, bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. 
Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any men left by morning. Wow. Then David accepted what she brought to him and said, Go in peace. See, I have heard what you have said and granted your request. No one dies. He turns around and goes home with his 400 men, takes his hand off the sword, and all is well. Several things I want to point out here from David's response and what she says to him for many of us to say, okay, Russell, I get it, okay? I'm angry. I get angry sometimes. I do it in a sinful way. Help me. Please give me some handles. Please give me some things that I can do so as to not be in sinful anger. Here's my acronym for you, right? I'm basing it off the the idiom, um, stick a fork in it, right? We stick a fork in something when it's done. I want you to stick a fork in your anger. Here's the Here's how I'm going to go for it. You ready? The acronym F, the first thing you have to do. And it's not the first thing. Maybe it's not in order, but these are similar characteristics. The F would be forgiveness. Forgiveness. Isn't that what she says? Please forgive your servant. This may not be step one, but it's going to be somewhere in there that there's this part that we say, I forgive. Now, here's the tricky part about forgiveness. Sometimes forgiveness is overlooking an offense because it's not a sin. Sometimes we forgive because it's a sin. Sometimes we overlook because it's not a sin. Like, thank goodness my wife overlooks where I put my socks. Because if she doesn't, she could give full vent to that. I mean, we have to overlook. The guy didn't use the blinker. I can overlook that. The, 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 the order was messed up. I can overlook that. I can overlook that you didn't say hi to me the way I wanted you to. I can overlook that you didn't ask me how my day was. I can overlook. I can overlook petty offenses. So sometimes it's forgiveness where I got to look at you and say, hey, man, you wronged me, and I just want to let you know that, and I forgive you. Sometimes it's I just need to overlook that and put it behind. So the first one is forgive. Second one, we're spelling out fork, would be O, which is own it. You got to own it. If you want to get rid of sinful anger, you got to own it. And that's exactly what David does here, isn't it? He says, this is what I was fixing to do. I was fixing to go kill everybody, and you stopped me. He doesn't say, like a three-year-old, Nabal made me do it. That's called blame shifting. And it's amazing how often we as adults say that. Well, if they would just use your blinker, I wouldn't get mad. No, it's not their fault. It's yours. It's an active response. It's an active response. Well, if they would just leave me alone, if they would just give me a tip, if they would just own it. You got mad. Own it. Take responsibility for your actions. Don't blame shift and put it on everybody else. Sure, listen, life's not fair and some things are going to happen and it gets hard and we got to forgive and overlook or listen, you're going to live in a constant state of whole person active response and most people will tell you, your body ain't meant to live like that. It ain't meant to live like that. So you got to own it, just just own it. R, we're spelling out fork, we got to forgive, we got to own it, you got to repent, you got to stop. We've already said you can stop. You've got to repent. That's exactly what David does. He turns this thing around, and he goes back home. He does not carry through with it. He repents. 
It's really important. And some of you would say, well, sure he repented. He got a magnificent meal from Abigail. I would have repented too. You sure about that? My mom used to use this statement when I was growing up. Don't cut your nose off to spite your face. How many people would have sat back and said, Abigail, it's too late. Sorry. You're all dying. I don't care about the flowers. I don't care about the note. I don't care about the date. I don't care about the apology. You disrespected me. I'm cutting my nose off to spite my face. Put your hand on the sword. How many of us are like that? You still got to repent. You still got to repent. You got to take your hand off of it and stop. Recognize it. Man, I'm owning it and I must stop. Got to turn. And then finally, if we're spelling fork, and I, I spell fork with a C, so uh, bear with me here. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the best I got. Andy Stanley could have come up with a K word. I don't. It's just a C. You ready? Here it is. Um, confession. 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 Um, I, I looked at my kids this week. It took me, it took me all week to build up the, the courage. Um, my kids know this about me. They, they know. They see it. They live with me. I, uh, I, I gathered them together. We were in the living room, and I said, hey, uh, you know, Dad, preaching on anger, you know I struggle with this. I said, um, fire it off. Tell me some times I've lost it. And it, it took me some time to muster that up, man. I didn't want to do it, and I heard about things breaking. They started mimicking the way, like apparently I rub my head and I get red. I'm like, oh my goodness, I wasn't looking for all of this, right? If you're going to ask, you better put your big boy pants on because it's coming, right? And so I ask and we're getting it. And thank goodness we could laugh about some of it. And, and, and then probably the, the time that I sat back and I thought, okay, man, I, I have failed a hundred times in this area. But my daughter, she said, dad, I just remember one time, I don't even remember what you were mad about. But you were mad, and, um, and then that night you came in my room, and you sat on my bed, and you said you were sorry. And uh, at that point, I'm like, okay, at least I got one. <laughs> one spot in there. Confession, where you just sit there and say, sweetie, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have acted like that. I shouldn't have said that. I'm, my bad. I love you. If, if you want to stick a fork in it, Forgive, own it, repent, confess. That's what we got to do. Um, this book here, Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones, this is where I got the definition. I should have given him credit earlier. Another guy named Lou Priolo, another guy named Ed Welch. I read this book about 10 years ago because it was hitting me front and center, and I just didn't like what I was seeing. I didn't want my legacy to be just an angry dude. I just didn't want that. And um, I'll tell you this, I, I got copies down here, and I know some of you aren't readers, and that's fine too. I, I, I'd love to visit anyway, but if some of you would say, hey, man, I, I'm struggling with this. You find me, I'll get you a copy of it, and I'd love to do breakfast and talk about it. And it's not because I'm, the, I'm on the end of like, hey, let me, let me answer all your questions. It would just be reading it together to say, man, I've been there, done that. I'm with you, battling it all the time. If you want one, I'll get it to you. Ladies, if, if you want one, get you one as well, and I'll find a lady who'll sit across the table and read it with you as well. Now, nah, we want to help you. We want to help. Um, however I could do that, I sure would. I'm going to close with this. Um, there's a fan, uh, famous uh, hymn writer. She wrote tons of them. Uh, she wrote the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Probably some of you who grew up in church know it well. Uh, what we didn't know about her is that she struggled with anger like crazy. 
she'd just fly off the handle and lose her mind, and she would feel terrible about it. And um, it's funny that she wrote this hymn. So I'm going to read a couple of the lyrics to you. She said, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Listen to this, verse 3. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Like I'm thinking about this lady, knowing she struggled with anger, prayed about it constantly. And this is what she's writing. And then finally she says this. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Just to pray for us to say, God, I I want my heart and my desires and my response to be yours. Take it and be consecrated. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, I went too long and uh, said a lot. I'm just praying that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, do your thing and make it make sense. Yeah, Lord, I, uh, I pray and just say thank you for my own Abigail, Terry, who walks me off the ledge and is able to say, hey, let's not do that. I pray that others have that in their, their lives where they could be open and honest with folks who would just hold that spot of accountability and truth. And Lord, as we think about this bread and juice we're going to come take here in a second, um, hard to imagine that you are never sinfully angry, but you are righteously angry at our sin. You are righteously angry at our, our rebellion, and you took that out on your son, Jesus Christ. Does he own that so that we could be reconciled to you? And so thanks for your love. And Lord, thanks for the fact that he died for our sinful anger. Um, yeah, Lord, thanks for being really good to us. Help us to trust us, trust you and your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.